Lord, we praise you and thank you this day for your word that is able to save our souls. And we ask that you would grant us grace and strength as we delve into your word. We ask that your word would inspect us, teach us, Lord, and help me as the teaching pastor of this church to present your word in a manner which is pleasing to you and beneficial to your people. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Again, that hymn that we used earlier in worship, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. We are, all of us, very prone to wander, to walk off the path that God has laid out for us for many and varied reasons. In the spiritual realm, we deceive ourselves when we wander. We deceive ourselves. In the first chapter of James, what James is basically doing, outside of teaching us very important lessons, he's laying the groundwork for the rest of the epistle. He's laying the groundwork. If we think of this as a sermon in writing, James chapter 1 would be considered rather like an introduction. He's laying out his great themes. And this idea that we deceive ourselves is something that James is concerned about. And we have every right to be concerned about it. As I mentioned last week, when we think of deception, it's not a good word. If we say someone deceived me or he deceived her, it's not a compliment. It speaks of manipulation. It speaks of underhandedness. It speaks of devilishness. The evil one is the great deceiver. But when we talk about self-deception, it almost seems a contradiction in terms. Why on earth would we ever want to manipulate ourselves into thinking the wrong thing? We can understand why a crook would want to deceive a person. We may not agree with the crook, but we can understand the crook's purpose. He wants to deceive the person so that they can get, so that the crook can get a financial reward from the person who is deceived. But can you ever think of a reason why it would be smart to deceive yourself? Don't think too long, don't think too hard. It's it's never a good thing. And James is very concerned about deceiving ourselves in the religious and spiritual realm. And this is what he's talking about. Now, when we think about our relationship with God... James presents him as Father, Father of lights. And we confess that, we profess that in the Apostles' Creed every week, as have our brothers for 2,000 years. As parents, as grandparents, as guardians, we do well to set up parameters for our children, do we not? We set up fences around them. They don't often appreciate those fences when they're children. They often think that we are trying to hem them in. And surprise, 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 that's exactly what we're doing. We're trying to fence them in because 
we as adults have more information about what lies outside of the fence lines. And we ask our children, just trust me. In ten years you'll understand why the fence is so very narrow. God sets fence lines around us. But, as parents, we also do well, and this is at least I find to be one of the more difficult things of being a parent, we allow our children to fail within those fence lines. We don't want them to fail outside of the fence lines because we know there's great danger there. But within the parameters that we've given them, we allow them to, as they grow older, learn things. Okay? We will allow a child to learn to button their own shirt. That's a good thing. And it's sometimes comical to see a, a, a boy do his uh, buttons and somehow the boy gets the front of his shirt to look like a, a I don't know what you can describe it, a folded napkin in some type of triangle. And the key is you, you have to start from the top and get that top button right. If you get the top button right, the others will flow. But if you start somewhere in the middle and you get that one wrong, there's a better than even chance that it's going to look like some kind of crazy folded napkin in a French restaurant by the time he's done. Or tying shoes, right? We allow a child to tie his or her shoes to learn how to do it. But more dangerous tasks, we forbid them. We'll allow them to watch us use power tools but when they're very young, a responsible parent doesn't allow the child to use the power tools. We will allow them to help us in the kitchen, maybe stirring up pancake batter or something of that nature, but we will not allow them at a certain age to actually use the frying pan. As they get older, we will. Why? Because they have been taught, because they have learned, because they have acquiesced to the fence lines that we have given them, and that's what God does for us in his word. He has more knowledge than we do. And when God tells us something, the act of faith really, at its essence, is acknowledging that he knows better than we do. And when we go outside of those fence lines that he gives us, what we are really saying at that moment is, God, you're wrong. God, I know a little bit more about this than you do. And I'm going to hop over to Spence and I will show you. Now, we don't actually work it through in our minds like that. Do you know why? Because if we actually did run our thought processes down that road, we would realize that we were talking in circles. We would realize that we were talking crazy talk. We would realize that we were about to deceive ourselves. None of us would ever stand in front of God Almighty and actually say, on this one, I know a little bit more than you. None of us would ever do that. But whenever we sin, that's exactly what we're saying. We're telling God your law is too strict. The fence line is too tight and I don't like it and I know better than you. Now, I encourage you, seriously, to think that through. And the next time you are tested, 
to a temptation to sin. Because every temptation is an opportunity to prove victorious in Christ. Just take a step back and think for a moment what you're actually doing. The conversation that is happening at mock speed, light speed in your head. Because the conversation happens so quick that we don't hear it. If we were to slow down the tape and realize that what we're telling God that we know better than He is doing, we would realize that we were nuts. Self-deception. And that's the context of these last two verses in chapter 1. If you look at verse 25, We talked about this last week, but remember, James uses verses as pivots to connect the various teaching portions of his passage. He who looks into the perfect law of what? Liberty. We don't usually think of law as liberty. But let me ask you this. Can you imagine a world where every single person obeyed the traffic laws all the time? That would be a nice world. Nobody ever speeds. Nobody ever goes too slow, because that's dangerous as well. Nobody passes you on the shoulder. Nobody passes you on the right. It is against the law to pass on the right. You may not know that. You're supposed to pass on the left. Nobody uses the center lane that separates the two sides of the road, nobody uses that as an extra lane to travel for a half mile. They realize it's a turning lane. Nobody runs red lights. Nobody nobody thinks of as a, a yellow light as a excuse to speed up to get through. Just think of that world and the amount of horrific accidents that would end. We would still have accidents because of weather and things of that nature. But the vast majority of traffic accidents happen because of human error, not mechanical error. Oh, and the the other traffic law, of course, is nobody drives under the influence. Imagine that world. Accidents would still happen, but they would be greatly reduced. Why? The law actually would then give us, if the law was obeyed, it would give us the liberty to drive in peace and comfort. When Ruth Ann and I visited uh, friends and her family in southern Germany 13 years ago, if you've ever been to Germany, and, and you're like me, I drive like someone who's 150 years old. I drive very, very slowly. Always have. The Autobahn is... A terrifying experience for someone like myself. There's three lanes. You can go as fast as you want. But there's an unwritten rule that the farthest right lane is where Americans drive. 70, 80, 90 miles an hour. In the middle lane is where people want to drive maybe 100 miles an hour, which I just think is crazy. Now, in the left lane, you go as fast as you want. And I told her cousin, I said, this is crazy. You're killing me here, okay? It's 12 at night. We're coming home. I'm going to have a heart attack. You're going 140 miles an hour in a Peugeot. He says, this is a French Peugeot, not one that's imported. He said, listen, have you noticed that nobody's passing me on the right? I said, hmm. He says, we actually obey the laws. If you're going to pass, 
You come right, I says, yes, I notice people are coming right up to you, and then you move over a lane, and then they pass you on the left. He says, when I do business in America, I'm terrified, even if I'm going 60 miles an hour, because you pass on the right, you use the shoulders, you don't obey the rules. There was liberty. Now, I still think that driving 140 miles an hour under any circumstances is crazy. But, he said, I feel safer here, going this fast, than when I'm in New York going 40, 50 miles an hour because of the chaos. God's law, if we would look at it properly, gives us the liberty to live our lives in conformity to his precepts. And he knows better than we do. And it tells us that the law is a law of liberty. And if we continue in it, as I challenged you last week to open up this word and to get into it and become a doer of the work, what does it say will be blessed in what we do? In what he or she does? The person who continues in the law is blessed. And then James continues with an if statement. If anyone among you, he's talking to believers here, thinks he is religious, and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. The word useless can easily be trained as, uh, translated as worthless. These verses here are scathing. This is talking to people who claim the name of Christ. This verse is talking to people who not only claim the name of Christ, but think they're religious. Think of how we use that word. Now, in our day and age, it's, it's not a good word. Oh, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. Okay, whatever. I don't believe in religion, I believe in spirituality. That's just code for, I want to do what I want and, and just have a peaceful attitude about it. That's really what it is. God has no problem with the word religion. He has no problem with the word religious. What he has a problem with is the improper practice of religion and those who think they are religious but deceive themselves. Again, back to the theme of deceiving yourself. It's very, very dangerous. Not only is it dangerous, it's just, what's a good adjective? Silly? That's a kind way of saying it. Insane is better. Deceiving yourself is insane. To deceive yourself, you can deceive yourself into thinking an outfit you're wearing is good looking. Even if the whole world is telling you, no, Definitely not. Take off the, the powder puff pink leisure suit. It's not working. But when you deceive yourself in the religious realm, it's, it's dangerous because heaven and hell are in the balance. Wear a tie that doesn't match and you think it's beautiful? No problem. Deceive yourself in this realm? Eternity, heaven and hell. Judgment and mercy are in the balance. Much higher stakes. And James tells us that if someone thinks they're religious and does not bridle their tongue, that that person deceives themselves and their religion is useless slash worthless. This idea of the tongue and bridle, what do we use that for? Horses. You put up, you put up, bridle, it controls an animal. James is telling us that we, our tongue, is a foreshadow to 
future chapters, that our tongue, the words that we use, are so dangerous, are so deadly, that we need to train them as if we would a brute beast. What is a bit and a bridle for? A house cat? No. It's for a brute beast that needs to be broken and trained. And that's what James is using here. And we do well to think this through. The scriptures are replete with references to the power of our words. Proverbs. When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. But he who restrains his lips is wise. You want to be a wise person? Who here wants to be wise? Begin by restraining your words. If you can say something in five words, don't use ten. Because there's more chance of sinning. Now, if you need ten, don't use five. Use the proper amount of words. Just thinking about the sheer volume of our words should give us pause. Think of the craziest things we say just in passing. And I've used this verse before because it's a terrifying verse. Jesus says that that we should mind our words in Matthew 12. Why? Because by our words we we shall be judged, by our words we will be justified, and by our words we will be condemned. That every useless word that we utter we shall render account for in the day of judgment. That's what Jesus says. Useless words. I want you to think of that for a moment. Every useless, worthless passing word that you uttered today, yesterday, for the last 30 years, 40 years, you and I will render account for them in the day of judgment. Not the angry words, not the blasphemous words, not the vicious words, not the hateful words, not the curse words, not the disgusting words, not the vicious, angry words that we use intentionally to destroy people. Whoa, we know that we'll be held accountable for those. Jesus ups the ante and says, just a useless word you're going to be be held accountable for. Now, if we're held accountable for useless words, as I've told you many times, what do you think is going to occur with those vicious words that we use like daggers to kill people? Useless words. Not malicious words. Not gossiping words. What do you think God thinks of malice and gossip? Think of how many families and lives and churches have been ruined by gossip. By malice. By fleeting words. By whispers. By backbiting. I need to be very careful not only because of the damage that they do, but because we deceive our own heart and our religion is useless and worthless. Now listen, if your religion is useless and worthless, what do you do with something that's useless and worthless? Unless you're a pack rat. If something you have is useless and worthless and you acknowledge it, what do you do with it? You throw it away. In the religious realm, useless and worthless religion, God has no use for. 
and it won't do us any good. So the lesson we need to think about in terms of the Great Commission, because the Great Commission talks about teaching people, discipling people to obey God's law, useless words, not bridling our tongue, they prevent the gospel from going forth. Useless words, passing words, if our tongues are not bridled, prevent us from loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and from loving our neighbor as ourself. Your words have power. Human beings have been given the gift of speech because we were created in the image of God. Animals use noises to scare away other animals and I don't know how birds communicate with each other. And truth be told, I don't really care. It sounds pretty. But the human race is unique. We can intentionally use our words to destroy. We can intentionally use our words to wound. We can intentionally use our words to kill. We can intentionally use our words to heal. We can intentionally use our words to comfort. Now that's a wise person who measures their words and uses the words to heal, not destroy. And this is a lifelong battle that all of us are going to have. We will all struggle with this all of our lives. Some of us more so than others. Some of us who are uh, prone to conversation it might, might be an area where we could be careful. And this is why later on in the book, James is going to say, uh, don't try and be a teacher. No, if you, if you uh, aspire to the role of the pulpit, be very careful. Be very careful. Be very careful. Because that's where a lot of damage can be done. And then James continues. He tells us what real religion is. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this. Now, just stop here for a minute. The, uh, the idea of purity and, and lack of defilement is a peculiar Judeo-Christian thing. This is Old Testament language. When we read the book of James and we listen to him, we really hear Jesus, his older half-brother. We hear language of the Sermon on the Mount. Purity and, and defilement. God's laws in the Old Testament, and there were a couple that we read today from, from Exodus that seem a little odd. They seem odd to our, our ears. They're 3,000 years old. The basic function of the Old Testament law, one of the basic functions of the Old Testament law, was to make a significant, visible difference between the chosen people of God and the pagan nations. In other words, you do this because everybody else is not, no matter how crazy it is. You don't do it to make yourself conspicuously holy, to make yourself conspicuously pure. And James is using this type of language that pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father, and then he tells us the definition. So we need to pay attention. Is this to visit orphans and widows in their trouble or in their affliction and to keep oneself unspotted from the world? Uh, well, you know what this is? Loving your neighbor as yourself and loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
Now, in the first century, an orphan and a widow was truly an orphan and a widow. And this must have been an issue in the dispersed communities that James is writing to, or he wouldn't have bothered to write it. Jesus, in the Old Testament law, there were provisions for widows and orphans. Luke chapter 7, Jesus is passing through a town called Nain. And there's a funeral procession. And there's a widow in the procession. And in the coffin is her only son. Now that woman, you need to know the historical background, that woman was all alone in that world. No social security. No one to protect her. Completely alone. Completely vulnerable. Her husband was dead and her only son was dead. And she's crying. And all those around her are crying. And Jesus comes up to her and says, Fear not. Don't weep. And he raises that boy from the dead. It's a significant miracle. Because it was done in conformity to the Old Testament law to look after the widow and the orphan. To look after those who can't look after themselves. Now in our day and age, we don't run into a lot of orphans. They're they're out there. There are plenty of children who may have parents in the home, but in reality, they're spiritual orphans because the parents are not acting like parents. There are millions of children in our society who are growing up without a father. Oh, they have a mother, so does that mean that we don't bother with them? Because they're not orphans, right? A widow and an orphan is an actual category of person. But what it's really getting at is true religion, if you've got religion, is to look after those who can't look after themselves. That you have pity on them in a good sense that you have sympathy for them, that you have empathy for them, that you try to enter their world and in, in the trite phrase of our day and age, you feel their pain. But you don't just feel it, you actually try and do something to alleviate that pain. And if you don't think there's people in pain around you, you're not looking around. And if you don't think there's people in pain that are vulnerable, then you're looking in the mirror far too long. All of us can look around and realize that there are people in our circles whose lives are nothing but pain and sorrow and misery. And true religion is telling us to look after them. And very often, it's through the use of the tongue. You can hurt somebody by not saying anything at all. If they need a kind word and you don't say anything, that's just as bad, sometimes even more bitter, than saying something nasty to them. So I encourage you to start looking around and asking yourself, the people that you work with, members of your family, ask, why do they act like that? Why? What, what's wrong? Where is the sorrow in their life? And you know no, no good way you can figure it out? You just ask them. Where do you hurt? Now, now at first, they're going to look at you as if you're nuts. 
But we have got to develop the tenor and a temper of our life where people are comfortable with us entering into their lives. If they know that we want to come into their fence lines to help and to heal, they will welcome us. If they think we're coming in there to hurt, to maim, to destroy, to judge, they'll lock the door. And then the second part is to keep yourself unspotted from the world. Many of us don't have much problem. None of us will certainly admit publicly to not wanting to help the vulnerable. <laughs> we would say, well, of course we want to help them. Well, let me just go step, take a step back. Operation Christmas Child doesn't cost any of us very much money. It's a shoebox with what we would consider trinkets. And I'm going to challenge you. There's about a half dozen boxes over there. This should be, by next week, there's no reason. There's no reason why every single member in this church can't do a shoebox and put some stuff in there. For an orphan. For someone who literally has nothing in the world. Nothing! Do you understand what I mean by nothing? There should be 30, 40, 50 boxes over there. I encourage you to do two boxes. have nothing. We've been given so much. But then to keep yourself unspotted from the world, uh, that's a little more difficult than doing a true box. <laughs> because the world wants to do nothing but stain you. You see, if we're commanded to keep ourselves unspotted from the world, then that tells us that the world wants to splatter us and stain us. Have you ever gotten a suit out of a dry cleaner? or a coat out of a dry cleaner, and then within 10 minutes of putting it on, somehow you've spilled something on it, or somebody has driven by. A couple of weeks ago, I went out to get mail, get the mail, and someone intentionally, I, no, I can't say that they did it intentionally, but it sure looked like they sped up and moved a little bit to the right. And they splashed me. They splashed me. Now, again, I can't say that they did it intentionally, but it sure sounded like the engine revved up, and it sure looked like they moved just a little closer to me. And they were young kids, so... Got splattered. That's what the world... Intent, the world is intentionally wanting to splatter you with its filth and its grime. Now, most of us as Christians, we're very careful to avoid the really nasty mud puddles. Right? We're not going to watch that. We're not going to go there. But what we have to understand, and we have to be very careful, is that what our generation of Christians considers acceptable entertainments, previous generations would have viewed as just disgusting entertainments. Let me share with you just a quick bit of history in closing. In the early church, in most early churches, do you know how long it took you to become a member of the church? I mean, we want church growth, right? All of us want church growth in America. Get the members in. Get them in. Get them in. Bring them in. Sign up. Sign them up. doesn't matter what you do. Just come on in. We want the roles packed. Do you know how long it took? Sometimes two, three years. Because they were being persecuted. And they had to be very, very careful. There were levels of people. People would come in 
And they had to be sponsored by another Christian. And they actually had to learn stuff before they could come in. Because, and our world is a little different, because if somebody came in and was an agent of the Roman government or the Jewish authorities, the whole house church might be put to death. So they had to be very careful. Do you know what they used at the end of the instruction phase as the test? The Apostles' Creed. And that's what the Apostles' Creed was created for, as a test. If somebody could stand and say, I believe these things, and they said it in public. You see, we say it, we have it memorized, we just go through the motions. There was a time when saying those things would get your head cut off. The world of the early church is very different from our world, but it still wants to stain us. So I encourage you, to practice true and pure religion and keep yourself unspotted from that world. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would help us to do that this week. In Jesus' name, amen.